Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. We got a lively, exciting, fun-filled, and then sort of serious podcast for you this week after week three of the NFL season and looking forward to week four. Uh, and I'll be joined by Miles Simmons, and we will discuss many topics, many topics, uh, including I can't believe these poor Miami Dolphins after playing in nearly 100-degree heat index, their defensive players playing 90 snaps in that heat now have to get on a plane and go and play Cincinnati and have to chase Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase around. Oh, my God, the schedule makers. Anyway, uh, Miles, welcome. Good morning. How are things with you? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm probably a lot better than those Miami Dolphins players, man. And you're right. Like this, the schedule makers did them no favors, but I don't know that they could have ever predicted that they would have to play 90 plays against the Buffalo Bills. I'm sure though that they feel a lot better after a win than they would have if Josh Allen had not Tim Tebowed that ball over to the right side and uh, made an incomplete pass instead of actually completing that thing on fourth and two for a touchdown. Yeah, that was, you know, we're going to discuss a lot of things, though that among them, uh, and the fact that Miami and Philadelphia are the only undefeated teams as we exit September, which is just unbelievable to me that after three weeks of the season, after 48 games, there's only two teams that are unblemished. But we're going to talk about that. We are going to have a guest later on in the podcast, Anna Wolf, the reporter for Mississippi Today, who has been at the forefront of all of the reporting on the Mississippi welfare scandal that has ensnared Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre in it. So you're going to want to listen to Anna Wolf including listening to Anna Wolf as she gets a little bit emotional about some of the things she sees as a resident of Mississippi with the people who have not been helped by the, the uh, grant funds from the state welfare department and what isn't being done in the state while the state is building volleyball arenas at the University of Southern Mississippi. So we're going to get to Anna Wolf a little bit later on. On this podcast, we're going to talk about, Miles is going to go out on a limb and he's going to say, which 3-0 team does he believe in? Then we're going to talk about why the Pro Bowl is dead and why I am dancing on its grave. Uh, we're going to talk about why Aaron Donald is so friggin' great. He just got to 100 sacks on Sunday. And what I absolutely love about that 100 sack, I absolutely love the fact that he chased down the uncatchable Kyler Murray and tripped him up for the 100th sack in his career. If that isn't perfect, I don't know what is. We're going to talk about Tua and his back injury and why I think it has really, it really bothers me from the standpoint of 
what really happened. And I think I'm so happy that the NFLPA is pressing the issue on this one. We'll get into that. And we're going to get into the Jacksonville Jaguars because I am not convinced that their two-in-one start is a fluke. As a matter of fact, I truly believe that Jacksonville is going to have a chance. I'm not saying that they're going to win the AFC South. They will be competitive through the end of December in the AFC South. And it won't shock me with the Colts and the, and the Titans both vulnerable. It won't shock me to see Jacksonville uh, you know, heading into the last couple of weeks of the season with a chance to win the division. Anyway, <clears throat> that's all of our topics for the day before we get into Anna Wolf. But I want to start by asking Miles Simmons this question. With Philadelphia and Miami, the only unbeaten teams left at 3-0, which one do you most believe in? Oh, I almost want to punt and say both because I think both will end up in the postseason. But I'm going to go with the Philadelphia Eagles in part because they're in the weaker conference and they're in the weaker division. And I love what Nick Sirianni has been able to build with that offense. And we saw last year how adaptable they were when it comes to turning what was more of a passing attack into a real run-based offense. But if you look at Jalen Hurts and what he's doing now, he is becoming a really, really, really good passer. And when you add somebody like A.J. Brown into that mix, it's going to make the passing game better. But then they've already got Devontae Smith. And when he's going for almost 160 yards in the first half of that game against the Washington Commanders, it shows you exactly how explosive that offense can be. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you look at some of the things that are coming out of Philadelphia. And the biggest complaint they've got right now is that they're not building upon double-digit leads in the second half enough. Uh, that's, uh, that's a champagne problem, I think. So I, I, I love yeah. the way Philadelphia is playing right now. And I, I think that they could run away with the NFC East. Um, I might have agreed with you until we saw the Monday night game this week and we okay. saw the Dallas Cowboys on defense. And that defense Fair. is a lot better than I thought it would be now. Again, I think there is some sort of voodoo doll in the personnel department of the New York Giants that says, let's draft (laughs) the cleanest tackle in this draft, Evan Neal, and we're going to put him outside on the right side. We're going to put him out on an island on that side. And and then we're going to watch him get beat for three sacks against the Dallas Cowboys. And he wasn't even beat up a lot by Micah Parsons in this game. It was the other guys on that line and particularly Demarcus Lawrence. And, and, and again, look, I don't want to, this is not, look, the giants are better than we thought they were going to be, but can they ever get the offensive line, right? How much money, how much draft capital have they spent? going back to Nate Solder and Andrew Thomas 
and mm-hmm. Evan Neal and all the money they have spent at Garden Center and all the draft capital and free agency capital. It's mind-boggling that they put on a performance where Daniel Jones was hit more than any single game in his career, and they still came very close to winning. I thought that was a good game for Daniel Jones. That's not what this is about. But I guess what I'm just saying is Dallas might be heard from in the NFC East. However, let me just say two things about you know our little debate here at the top. Philadelphia or Miami, who do you believe in more? I'm just like you. I believe in the Eagles a little bit more. Uh, in part because, as you say, their path to the NFC Championship game is a lot cleaner and a lot clearer than Miami's path is. No question about it. And I also really like how much a 24-year-old quarterback who had a really good college resume Mm -hmm. and was drafted in the second round and everybody thought, why are they drafting a quarterback when they got their franchise guy in Carson Wentz? I'm convinced at the time that they did it, the Philadelphia Eagles, simply because they thought that the number two quarterback position on any team in football is worth the 50th pick in the draft or whatever it was. And I absolutely, totally agreed with it. Carson Wentz was a baby about when when they drafted uh, Jalen Hurts. He did not take it well. Oh, you're taking some, you're drafting somebody to take my job. No matter what they said to him, they weren't drafting somebody to take his job. One of the reasons why he did take Carson Wentz's job is because Carson Wentz, you know, took it so poorly. And he didn't stay the same quarterback, the same sponge for information and everything that he had been. And I'm not saying that Car- that he wouldn't have eventually lost his job to Jalen Hurts. Hurts was not drafted to replace Carson Wentz. But here we are. And now the Philadelphia Eagles are probably on the verge of saying, how are we going to pay Carson Wentz now? Or how are we going to pay Jalen Hurts now? Excuse me. Um, Because eventually they are going to have to pay him. That's how well he's playing. You know, one of the things that I really like about what we've seen out of Jalen Hurts is he is the best quarterback at both throwing the ball deep, as you've seen. I mean, who would have thought that we enter October, we, you know, we've, we've played three games in this season and we will enter October and the leader in the NFL in yards per attempt at 9.4 yards on average every time he passes the ball is Jalen Hurts. Nobody would have thought that. It would have right. been Josh Allen. It would have been Brady. It would have been Stafford, who Justin Herbert, whatever. It isn't. It's Jalen Hurts. A.J. Brown helps. Devontae Smith really helps. And the fact that he trusts his deep arm. I think all Mm -hmm. those things really help. So I'm going to agree with you. And I'm going to say one thing about the Miami Dolphins that concerns me a bit. Okay, so Miami has had a tough early schedule. Okay, and that tough early schedule has had them playing 
Uh, you know, New England in the first week, pretty good quarterback in Mac Jones. Obviously, they just played Josh Allen. And then the week before that, they played Lamar Jackson. So I'm not saying that this number is the be-all, end-all of what you could should consider when you consider, uh, you know, what team is really good after three weeks or what team isn't, who you have to be worried about. And the other thing is, I'm not saying that passer rating is the greatest number and the greatest indicator of whether a team, you know, has to be worried about its defense. But the opposer passing rating, passer rating, uh, for the Miami Dolphins so far this year is 104.3. You know, they're allowing 69% completions. Um, they've had only one interception. They, had, they allowed a 400-yard passing game to Josh Allen on Sunday. And, and obviously, uh, Lamar Jackson had his way with them last week. So there's so much of this that is open for debate. Um, but I'm just telling you, I worry a little bit about Miami's uh, pass defense, uh, even though, I'll tell you what, I watched a lot of that game the other day, Miles, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and this, this Javon Holland at safety, the second-year safety from Oregon. Yeah. He is such an enforcer playing all over the field. Um, I, I, I think they are on the uptick defensively, but they're going to have to be on the uptick defensively, um, you know, or else that is going to end up hurting them as the year goes on. Yeah, it's interesting because when they decided that they were going to move on from Brian Flores, they obviously kept Josh Boyer as their defensive coordinator. And I think that helps with the continuity and why Miami has been able to be successful in winning games. When you don't have to worry that everything is new on one side of the ball, it it honestly does help you a lot. And I think Mike McDaniel's attitude and how he has gone about leading that team also has a lot to do with their success so far. But what you bring up with the passer rating is a very, very good point, especially when you're going into a Thursday night game against Joe Burrow and a team in the Bengals that got right against the New York Jets. They, They needed a get right game more than anything, and they absolutely got that going to the Meadowlands and beating Uh, the Jets as they did and so Joe Burrow is going to probably want to take advantage of some of those opportunities that are going to be out there for him I mean he's got one of the best receiving cores in the league when you're talking about Jamar Chase and T Higgins and Tyler Boyd those guys are great so it's going to be interesting to see a how that defense competes again after playing 90 plays against the Buffalo Bills And also, given what you just said about that passer rating that they have against them, can they tighten up a little bit and make the plays and get a couple of takeaways? Because that's obviously going to help that unit as a whole because they can get off the field. But then also you're going to give to a tongue of Iloa if he plays. And also um, Jalen Waddell, Tyreek Hill, those opportunities in order to, to really get down the field and score and get those explosives that we know Miami can put up. The following five starters on the Miami defense played 80 or more snaps in this game. And Javon Holland is listed on the official play-by-play sheet as having played 92. 
Now, it's only listed as 90 plays in the game, so I'm not positive. Penalties? Just recheck that. It, it, it might be it might be penalties, but I just yeah. want to make sure. Yeah, 90 snaps. It must be penalties, but I wasn't yeah. I didn't think that the NFL counted penalties in the official play-by-play numbers. But anyway, be that as it may. 90 or 92. Uh, what's a it's few a extra lot. plays when you're totally <laughs> right. exhausted? Um, but but both corners, you know, Howard and Needham both played uh, more than 80 snaps. Howard 81, Needham 90. Um, both safeties played over 83 snaps. Um, and then you have Jerome Baker, who's their sideline to sideline linebacker. He played 83 snaps. So... I I really wonder when they get on the plane to Cincinnati on Wednesday. Uh, first of all, you know, for people, I did this with Austin Eckler in my column last week. You know, I asked him about what's the week like before you play a Thursday night game. And he sort of documented what happens every day. There's no practice at all. You don't put on a single pad. You just walk through all of your work during the course of the week. You may lightly jog, but you don't do anything physically in the week before a game, uh, week before a Thursday night game. Particularly in this case, when you get beat up so much and you're going on the road, this is gonna be the ultimate test uh, of, of a team's resilience. And you know, one other thing about this, as you watch the Thursday night game, I asked, after, you know, I talked to, uh, uh, I, I, I talked to Holland, Javon Holland, when he was in the car on the way home on Sunday. And I said, what hurts? And he said, everything. I said, what, you know, how much? He said, everything, everywhere. And so, you know, we just have to see how the human body can respond. And the good thing for Miami, this is a young team. Mm-hmm. but I just don't know if they're going to be able to be the same Miami Dolphins that battled Buffalo down to the wire. But anyway, that's our take on the two 3-0 teams in football, Philadelphia and Miami. So let's get to our other topics du jour or du week. Uh, as they say in the French business. So I want to—I don't want to spend a lot of time performing an autopsy on the Pro Bowl because it just isn't worth it. But <laughs> I remember a few years ago when I was doing, um, you know, when I was doing more work at NBC and I was on TV with NBC every week, I just killed the Pro Bowl in my column one one day. This was 10 years ago. I killed the Pro Bowl in my column and one person at NBC said, man, why do you hate the Pro Bowl so much? And, you know, it gets good ratings and, you know, it gets better ratings than an NBA playoff game and all that stuff. And I just said, because it is phony, it is a fraud, People do not want to play in the game. And every player in the game, other than gee whiz, second and third year guys who say, oh my God, 
I'm playing in the Pro Bowl. I'm going to go all out. The vast majority of players don't go all out, don't care. All they're trying to do is protect themselves from injury. It's been this way for 15 years. Yeah. And the NFL, I, I, you know, everybody says, oh, good for the NFL. They're making it a skills competition. Flag football, great. They should have done it 15 years ago. And so I'm happy that it's done, but I just think it's absurd that it's taken this long for the NFL to drive a stake through it. Well, frankly, Peter, I totally agree with you. It's always been kind of a farce. And I think the one play that everybody kind of shows where it's the Pro Bowl and it's great is that Sean Taylor, you know, safety hit where he's coming up and he's blowing somebody up. But nobody really wants that anymore. And you shouldn't want that. This is, as much as anything, kind of a health and safety issue. Why are you going out there and trying to play a very – dangerous sport at a very high level for no good reason that's kind of the crux of the pro bowl and whether you play it in hawaii whether you play it after the super bowl before the super bowl it kind of doesn't matter it's an all-star game that does not have the kind of cachet as an all-star game in the nba which is another one where they don't necessarily try all that much but it's at least more entertaining because it's a safer sport or in baseball where again it's it's different because you're not having the same amount of injury risk on every single pitch as you do with every single play in football so I mean, I guess the only disappointing part about this is that we won't get to see Mac Jones gritty anymore in the Allegiant Stadium end zone. So, but maybe that'll be a part of the skills competition. Maybe it'll be gritty, you know. They'll have to do one thing like that. I, I don't know. That's your best touchdown dance. But the fact that the Pro Bowl is gone, it doesn't disappoint me yeah. at all. Next topic, Aaron Donald, 100 sacks. And... Miles, for those who don't know, who listen to this podcast or might be watching this podcast on the NBC Sports YouTube channel, um, I want you to explain to people as someone who used to cover the Los Angeles Rams and was around them a lot and was around Aaron Donald a lot. Tell me why he's so good and what is maybe a favorite memory of him that you have? Sure. Uh, the, the two words that I would say are work ethic. And it, it's something that has always, always, always stood out about Aaron Donald. So I, I covered the Rams for five years for them. I was a reporter for their team website. And I started in 2014, which was Aaron Donald's rookie year. And the funny thing about that is I remember – Jeff Fisher, head coach, and Greg Williams, then the defensive coordinator. I'm like, yeah, Aaron Donald's really good, but he needs to earn it. They weren't just going to put him out there as a first-round pick and as a starter. So this is kind of an obscure trivia fact, but Kendall Langford actually started the first four games of that season alongside Michael Brockers in 2014. But Aaron Donald made flash plays whenever he first got out there. So week one, they're playing the Minnesota Vikings, which was a Matt Castle versus Austin Davis quarterback battle, which, yeah, it was as exciting as you think. But Aaron Donald comes out and he makes two tackles for loss against Adrian Peterson. And you're kind of like, whoa, who's this? Like, that's, that's interesting. Next week, he goes out there as a sack against the Buccaneers. And by week four, he's starting and he's never looked back. And I remember 
talking to Chris Long, who now is also in the podcast business, uh, in that locker room late in the season when it seemed like Aaron Donald was making a push to be the offense, excuse me, defensive rookie of the year, asking him, you know, what, what stood out about Aaron when he first came in? And it was those words that Chris Long said, work ethic. I, I he remembered coming into the building really early one day, it, either during training camp, OTAs, whatever offseason program. And Aaron Donald was already in there and he had been in there for a while and he was watching film. And it was just something that Chris Long had never really seen from a young defensive tackle like that, where he was just in there and he was already watching the film and he was already studying and he was breaking down things and breaking down offensive linemen. And Chris Long's like, okay, I guess this is just the way it's going to be with this guy. And so it's always been that with Aaron Donald. And so I'll tell you, once we got to LA and things really started to take off because Sean McVay be became the head coach, and in 2018, when he uh, set the single season franchise sack record, uh, when he had 20 and a half sacks there, we were leaving Arizona. I think it was the penultimate game of the season. And he had just, I think, set that, that single season franchise sack record. And he was on the bus and he just broke down. And it was just one of those emotional things where he had accomplished something that was a part of his goal. And obviously he didn't get to the, the real pinnacle of that until he just won the Super Bowl, you know, a few months ago in February. But it was one of those things where you could tell how much it meant to him that all the work that he had put in was really paying off on the field. And it wasn't just that he was getting the individual you know, records and he was doing all the stuff individually, but he was really helping his team win. And that was meant so, so much to him. So it was really, really cool being able to, in some ways, grow up in this NFL business alongside Aaron Donald and to see him have all the success that he's had. It, it's been really, really cool. A hundred, a hundred sacks in 130 games. And I think one of the things that I think of when I think of Aaron Donald is just a scene from training camp this year when, uh, luckily for me, I went to a practice on a day when the Rams had broken camp in Irvine and were in, at their practice facility at Cal Lutheran in Thousand Oaks, California. And I was on the sidelines and there was a scrum on the field. This was I, one of the things that I really like about the Rams program is that when they practice against each other, when they have a scrimmage, they mean it. This yeah, is going. not a, oh, let's take care of the guy on the other side of the line. This is, if this is a scrimmage and we're practicing full out, uh, I'm going to try to beat this guy and embarrass him and, and make him question his manhood and all this stuff. <laughs> And there was a scrum at the end of one of the plays, okay? And so Aaron Donald ripped off the helmet of an offensive lineman, and he just <laughs> threw it about 20 feet in the air. And I was standing with Andrew yeah, Whitworth, like who luckily for him, he's now retired. But I said to him, wow. I said, what's that? He goes, look, two things. He said, first of all, that's happened 100 times, yeah. you know, with practice, scrums like this. Number two, I guarantee you it'll be forgotten. It was Rob Havenstein or Havenstein, however you pronounce it. I always get Havenstein. his name wrong. And Havenstein, he goes, I yeah. guarantee you 
Aaron and Rob at the end of practice will be buddies again. And I don't know if they'll be buddies, but at least it's not going to carry over. So <laughs> yeah. that was one thing. And the other, the other thing I think about just in an X and O way, like when I was growing up in the game, I covered the New York Giants in the 80s. And the ideal defensive disruptor was Lawrence Taylor. Go around mm. the edge really fast, get to the quarterback. And he was also a real physical player. But it was about the edge players. For years, get the edge players, get the edge players. Everybody still wants the great edge players. But yeah. I also think that there is an emphasis. And the Eagles last year mentioned it to me when I was talking about Jordan Davis. And they said, look, his path to the quarterback is a lot shorter than the edge guy. And somebody there told me that's what we've learned over the years watching Aaron Donald. You know, yeah. it's a lot, much, a lot shorter yeah. of a path. Plus... A guy like Jordan Davis in his prime should be able to occupy two blockers, which makes it more possible for other guys to get to the quarterback. Anyway, my only point is, I think by showing that you can be a sack master and a destructive influence consistently, even when you're blocked with two guys in the middle of that line, he's changing a lot of what really good personnel people are looking for these days. So yeah, it's a couple of thoughts on Aaron Donald. Um, let's just move to Tua Tagovailoa and the so-called back injury from Sunday. And I'll just, I really want to hear your thoughts on this miles because I, I really thought after I saw this and then after I saw him come out in the second half, you know, over the years, so many players, even when they're concussed and they don't know where they are, have said to the coach, I'm fine, I'm fine. They stay in the game. And the NFL, to its credit, has put an unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant on the sidelines of every NFL game. So that person can tell when a guy seems wobbly, he can take him into the locker room and perform all the cognitive tests that the NFL now mandates on a return to play. If a guy is going to be able to return, he's got to understand that he's going to have to do this and be able to follow the, uh, you know, have your eyes follow something. And you're going to have to answer some questions uh, that show that you're clear-eyed, not cloudy. Anyway, or clear-headed, excuse me. Yeah. So we saw Tua Tonga-Valoa his head hit the turf very hard. And as he tried to get up, he wobbled and basically almost fell down. And he had to be helped to the sidelines. And so he goes into the tunnel and we don't see him. And then he runs out and he plays the second half. And after the game, he said it was a back injury. It wasn't a head injury. And now I'm sorry. I'm not here to call Tua Tagovailoa a liar. Maybe it is a back injury. But I'm just saying this reminded me of the old days of football when people would say, oh, I just hurt my neck. My, I, I, I'm not concussed. Or I, and, and in this case, he said, I hurt my back. But I don't know, Miles. I don't know when you hurt your back if you get wobbly. And so yeah. I'm just a little skeptical of this. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, Peter, I, I, I want to, I guess I'd start at the end of the story and then go back because the end of the story, at least from a Monday perspective, and I, I guess it's not really the end because the NFL PA has opened an investigation on how the, uh, how Tua Tungvaloa was allowed to return to play, which I think is actually a very, very good thing because it means we're going to be able to get down to the truth and whatever it is. But on Monday, Tuatunga Vailoa was not in the concussion protocol. And so that at least says to me that things were not necessarily as bad as they might have looked. Because if he had been in the concussion protocol on Monday, then that means they really did miss something on Sunday. And so from that perspective, yes. it's like at least that we know that, that he is okay from the neurological head perspective on Monday. Now, in the injury report estimate, he wouldn't have practiced because of a back injury, and then also he has an ankle issue as well. So for, if we start there and then we work backwards, when you see that play, you're thinking, oh my goodness, that looks horrible. And Mike McDaniel was saying in his press conference on Monday that Tua Tungabailoa didn't really understand why everybody was so concerned about him from that neurological perspective because he hadn't seen the replay. And he's telling them, no, it's my back, it's my back. And everybody's like, uh, we got to check you out, man. We got to check your head here because what, what it looked like is your head slammed on the turf. And it was grass and not the field turf, which I think probably helps because the grass has a little bit more give. It's got that natural surface. Right. Um, and then also, when you start wobbling like that, it looks really, really bad. Peter, I'd go back to 2015, again, when I was covering the Rams, and there was a game in Baltimore where Case Keenum had something similar happen, where his head bounced off the turf. Yeah. He got up. He was wobbly. And then he was kind of almost falling down. His offensive linemen were trying to hold him up because that's what you do for another human being. But then he was still allowed to be out there. And that was one of the things that got missed. And all of us in the press box didn't quite see it because, you know, you're looking at the field, you're looking at TVs, you're trying to write, you're trying to do everything. And it just wasn't spotted. And so that was pretty egregious. And it turned out on Monday that Case Keenum had a concussion. And so that's one of these things where because Tonga Vailoa was removed from the field, he was examined, he was cleared, and now he doesn't have a concussion that makes me feel better about the entire process than something like what I was talking about in 15 with Keenum. And it's the process failed. Here, it appears at least the process worked, but... As I said, I'm, I'm glad that the NFLPA exercised its right to have an investigation opened so that we know exactly what happened and why he was able to be cleared. I, I think that's a great way to put it. For now, we have to assume that the process worked because Tua Tagovailoa has to pass neurocognitive tests in the locker room to return to play. All I am saying is when I heard that it was, quote, a back injury after right. he slammed his head on the ground, it just didn't feel right, didn't pass well, the smell test. The other thing the was NFL that PA they- the NFLPA is pushing yeah. for a look. Yeah. They announced it as a head injury, Peter. And that that's part of why it was like, well, wait a minute. How does it all of a sudden become a back injury if the Dolphins have right. said that they're because being Tua after for a head the game, injury? <laughs> yeah, Tua after the game said it was a back injury. And said he didn't hurt his head. But but let's just see. We'll see. And I want to give the process the benefit of the doubt. But 
all I can say is it really reminded me of the old days when guys would yeah. say, oh, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah. Okay, final topic before we get to Anna Wolf is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Look, I don't want to stat you to death, okay? I, I mean, I don't want to stat you to death. I don't mean I don't want to stat you to death, okay? You turn but me into a gargoyle? I don't want to you to death. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But I do want to give you a stat that I think screams volumes. It doesn't just speak volumes. But, okay, Trevor Lawrence, passer rating last year to this year. 71.9 last year, 103.1 so far this year. The opponent's passer rating for the Jacksonville Jaguars last year, 100.8. This year, 72.7. Now, a lot of people would say that, oh boy, their secondary must have really improved. Everybody knows that pass defense equals a combination of pass rush pass defense. They are pressuring the pocket a lot more this year than they have. Trayvon Walker has had a nice start to his NFL career. Um, you know, it's amazing to me. I kind of criticized the Jaguars and said, how in the world can you have a guy who was never in three years, first or second team, all SEC on the defensive line? Never. And then you pick him first in the draft. What are you seeing that they didn't see? And again, you know, all conference teams can be a little bogus, but I thought that was weird. But Trayvon Walker has had a good start to his NFL career, so I'll give him that. And, and opposite Josh Allen, they, this, is, this is a pretty good defense. But I just see a more confident guy in Trevor Lawrence. And I'll tell you what he told me last week when I spoke to him. I said, what's been the key for you under Doug Peterson? And he basically said it's knowing when to take chances and when to take eight or 10 yards. Basically, I'm paraphrasing him. But sure. he said there is, in this offense, there's always a play to be made. And sometimes you're going to want to challenge and throw downfield. But I want to make a positive play every time I throw the ball. And so far, he's been great at that. The stats bear that out. And to me, Miles, there was no more startling score in in week three even Miami beating Buffalo that was startling but but the Jaguars beating the Chargers 38 to 10 that yeah. was a wow give me your thoughts well, on the Jags yeah well especially after they really kicked the mess out of the Colts the week before 24 to nothing on their home field and yeah TIAA Bank Field has been a complete house of horrors for the Indianapolis Colts since they haven't won there uh, since 2014. But at the same time, when you do that, you get a good win, you know, your first win under Doug Peterson, and then you go on the road across the country and really steamroll a Los Angeles Chargers team that we were all talking about as a potential Super Bowl contender on their home field, 38 to 10. You make it so uncompetitive that Justin Herbert really shouldn't have been playing after they scored that last touchdown with about five minutes left in the game. And that's another topic for another day with Brandon Staley. And why in the world was Justin Herbert playing with injured ribs when the game's uncompetitive at that point? But I digress. The Jaguars... I will say this, because I said this on uh, PFT Live with Mike Florio yesterday. 
I think they're going to win the NFC, excuse me, the AFC South. Now you said you didn't want to go that far. I'm going to go that far because from what I've seen from the Titans and from the Colts and from Houston, this is the best team in the division. They have the stuff on offense. You got Zay Jones performing at a high level. Christian Kirk, that contract seems like it was worth it. And you mentioned the defense. Mike Caldwell's doing a great job there with those guys on the front end, whether it's Josh Allen, whether it's Walker. They understand how they need to play to win games. I'll say this too. There are always some wonky results in week one. I think at the end of the year, Washington defeating the Jacksonville Jaguars in week one is going to be perhaps the wonkiest result we see of the season because those two teams are on completely opposite trajectories. But you know what, Miles? Miles, it is, but just the way I look at that result now in retrospect is very, very simple. New coach, new offensive system, new defensive system getting Travis Etienne up to speed, getting a new receiver core led by Christian Kirk up to speed, learning a lot of new guys and their places on that defense, new head coach, everything was new. My feeling is first game of the season is almost now like the third preseason game. Nobody plays in the preseason. You have no idea what's going to happen in week one. That's right. why I, that's one of the reasons why, like, for instance, I didn't take the Colts Texans game, you know, the tie game. I didn't think that was a fatal flaw, a road loss in week one, you know, yeah. because they, they hadn't played anybody in the preseason, but, but be that as it may be that as it may, I think you're right. People look back and say, wow, that was a weird result in week one because Jacksonville's a, you know they got to be a t- they got to be ten points better than Washington right now. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll see that you know continue to bear out over the course of the season. But I, I love what Doug Peterson's been able to do there so far, and they've got another test obviously when they come up this week. But it, it's I, I just I like that they have shown the attitude that they've shown. Like I said, go, going across the country and beating a team like they did in the Chargers in their house, that says a lot to me about that team and the attitude that has started to permeate through it. And that's going to give you more confidence in order to beat whoever else is on your schedule. Yeah. Miles, uh, good discussion today. I want to get to our guests now. Um, Anna Wolf, she's a reporter for Mississippi Today. I think one of the interesting things about Anna Wolf is that She was working at a newspaper in the state, the biggest newspaper, the Jackson Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. And this uh, new website, this new nonprofit newspaper, which is sort of like the model that ProPublica uh, has now, which is a nonprofit, um, you know, basically online resource that sometimes teams with other journalistic entities to do investigations. But Anna Wolf wanted to cover poverty. You know, some people grow up wanting to cover the NFL or the White House or whatever. Anna Wolf saw such disparities in the state of Mississippi and such poor, uh, you know, treatment of the, of, the, of the poorest in Mississippi that she wanted to investigate why this is. So she has been on the case of the uh, of the fraud in the Mississippi state welfare system 
And that obviously has now involved Brett Favre, the Hall of Fame quarterback. We discussed a lot of this in our conversation. So let's hear now from Anna Wolf. Happy to be joined on the podcast now by Anna Wolf, an investigative reporter for a journalism nonprofit in Mississippi called Mississippi Today. Uh, Anna Wolf has led the reporting on the story of misspent welfare funds in the most poverty-stricken state uh, in our country. Uh, I, I might be wrong on this, Anna, but I think about 20% of all Mississippians currently live in poverty. Um, and there's a burgeoning welfare scandal in the state that uh, Anna Wolf has been uh, at the forefront of, and that is uncovering evidence that funds that should have gone to the poor instead have been targeted for pet projects for the very well-connected in Mississippi, including one of the most famous athletes in state history, Brett Favre, the Hall of Fame quarterback. Uh, in her reporting, uh, Anna Wolf has found out that the former governor of the state, Phil Bryant, is alleged to have helped coach Favre and others with the correct way to construct and word a grant application to pass muster to get state welfare funds targeted for construction of a volleyball arena on the campus of Southern Mississippi. Now, how is Brett Favre involved in that? Brett Favre is one of the most distinguished uh, University of Southern Mississippi products. And at the time that this all went on, uh, four and five years ago, Favre's daughter, uh, Breeley, was a volleyball player at the university, and he was very interested in, in helping the volleyball program at Mississippi. So, Anna, Wolf, I appreciate you joining me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Okay, so Anna, let's let's just start by uh, going to a very current event. Uh, last Thursday, uh, one of the top state officials in the welfare agency in the state of Mississippi uh, was further embroiled in this scandal uh, when this uh, person named John Davis was essentially uh you know brought further into this uh scandal uh by pleading guilty to several charges and i want to know let's just update it and let's start with the more current events uh involving john davis and how that uh gets more to the heart of this matter Sure. So John Davis pled guilty on Thursday to both federal and state charges. He's been facing state charges for the last two and a half years related to his role in this welfare scandal. And again, this is the misspending of at least $77 million, according to forensic auditors. Um, of course, the amount that is determined to be theft or a criminal um, matter is a much smaller number, but he was charged back in 2020 with funneling money to a former professional wrestler, actually. There are more sports figures than just Brett Favre in this story. And he finally pled guilty on Thursday to state charges related to money that he funneled to that wrestler and to send him to drug rehab, actually, in Malibu. Um, he also pled guilty to new federal charges that relate to money that he gave not to this wrestler, but actually his brother, 
Um, and both of these wrestlers are the sons of the uh, famed WWE wrestler Ted the Million Dollar Man DiBiase, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Um, so his I'm not, but maybe they are. <laughs> I wasn't before this, but I've, I've certainly gotten an education on, on the WWE here. Um, but his charges, it's important to note, do not relate to um, schemes related to Brett Favre and, and or the former governor. Um, you know, this story has really taken off here lately because of information about communication that the former governor, Phil Bryant, had with Brett Favre about these projects before they received welfare funds. So it is important to note that John Davis did not plead guilty to charges related to those projects. But as the welfare director, which is an appointment by the former governor, um, and the agency, the Department of Human Services, is overseen by the governor's office, it's important to, to make the note that he essentially uh, predictably has the most direct information about the former governor's involvement in the direction of these funds. And so it, it is a turning of the, of the case uh, because it signals that he is going to be cooperating with investigators. And after his plea agreement, after his plea hearing, uh, the, the DA in Hines County actually said that this signals that investigators and prosecutors are, in his words, moving up the ladder. And so that is significant language in terms of, you know, who, what, who knows what and what does John Davis know about figures who would have been higher up on the chain than him, which um, points to former Governor Phil Bryant and Brett Favre. So the way that this started, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because this comes from your reporting, that five years ago, July 2017, uh, John Davis, who is the head of the Department of Human Services at the time, basically green lights informally $4 million from uh, state welfare agency funds to go to building a volleyball arena on the campus of the University of Southern Mississippi. I may be slightly wrong in that, and if I am, please correct me, but what is it that it just sounds so incredible that anybody would say, oh yeah, let's use state welfare funds to build an athletic facility. What, what was this all about? So there is kind of a chicken or the egg question here about, you know, did they start manipulating this fund uh, in order to appease Brett Favre or had they already been manipulating the fund and then Brett Favre comes in and asks for money and they already know where to go, right? And so when Brett Favre started approaching people, you know, I know that he was going to private uh, people, private uh, donors, um, but also the state of Mississippi to get funds for this project that he wanted to see. Um, uh, come to fruition in Mississippi, this new volleyball stadium. Uh, he went to these state officials and there was a meeting at the university with John Davis and also this nonprofit founder, uh, Nancy New, uh, to which the welfare agency was funneling tens of millions of these federal dollars um, for her nonprofit to be able to spend outside of public view, right? That's, a, that's an important point. And so how they ended up meeting together you know, I think we're still trying to build that timeline out, you know, where there are conversations with the governor prior to this. 
Um, but certainly it's, it's a little hard to believe that the head of this welfare department, again, an agency under the governor's office, would just verbally commit $4 million in welfare money to this project without knowing that his boss was on board with it, right? And so after this um, verbal agreement comes, and by the way, this federal fund, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, the reason that they knew that they could target this fund for this kind of um, project is because the federal regulations around this fund are so lax. States essentially get this money from the federal government every year, and they don't have to give it out to people through direct cash assistance as the program is most commonly known for, the welfare check, right? They were denying, prior to this, they were denying up to 99% of people who were applying for this program. And so that created a scenario where they were still getting all this money and they basically had it to spend. Uh, they weren't giving it out to, to needy families. And so they knew that they could kind of skirt around the federal regulations in order to make this project work because the federal government wasn't paying attention. The federal government wasn't requiring the state to provide any documentation of what they were doing with the money, like how they were actually spending it and who they were serving. And so when Brett Favre comes up with this idea of this project he wants to get done, the officials know that they can manipulate this fund in order to appease him. And so after that initial um, commitment is made from John Davis, that's when uh, you see the communication where um, Phil Bryant and Nancy New and Brett Favre are all communicating about how to get the ball rolling on actually funneling the money, actually making the payments happen from the Department of Human Services to this nonprofit, to the um, athletic foundation that built the facility. You know, I found myself thinking when I was reading your reporting, what would have happened if John Smith, private citizen from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, approached the state and said, I'd like to get $4 million in funding to build a volleyball arena at the University of Southern Mississippi versus Brett Favre saying, I'd like to get $4 million for this stadium at Southern Miss. Anna, it was almost in reading your reporting, like there were a lot of fanboys in the state governor going all the way up to the governor's office that, hey, we get to hang out with Brett Favre and hey, we get to converse and and be able to try to do him a solid and and all that. I might be going too far in that, but is there a cult of celebrity in the state of Mississippi that might have led to some of this? Uh, you're not going too far at all. I think that's exactly on the nose. Um, I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit throughout this process of um, how the story of this entire welfare scheme has only been publicized nationally because of Brett Favre's name. I mean, our obsession with celebrity nationally, you know, is, is <laughs> the way that this story has been told nationally is sort of, um, you know, from the same, uh, it's the same issue that got us in this situation in the first place, right? Right. Um, yeah, we, we exalt celebrity, we exalt athletes in particular here in Mississippi, you know, we're kind of like ranked 50th and everything good, but one of the things that we do really well is we produce a lot of great athletes. And so those are kind of the people in the state that we exalt. 
And I think that you saw exactly that, that when uh, Brett Favre reached out to them, they were more than willing to help, you know, um, and uh, as a way to get close to them. There were messages at one point where while they were trying to find a way to get more money from the welfare department to the volleyball facility in about 2019, he was texting with John Davis and Nancy knew, and he sent a text to Nancy that said, um, I love John so much and you, and you think about like what kind of feelings that generated in those people who held the purse strings, you know, for the state and the fact that Brett Favre was telling them that he loved them. Right. Um, there were text messages at one point that talked about Brett Favre was talking with another business associate about jo buying John a, a really nice truck or uh, buying, you know, uh, vehicles or, or giving gifts to these people um, in exchange for their help. And so that was kind of the way that they talked about it. And it's kind of the, it's the good old boy system on full display, but just with, you know, higher, um, more high profile characters than you might imagine. I wonder sometimes if you in your reporting have thought of, I know at one point you actually went to see the nearly finished construction of the volleyball arena and the beach volleyball uh, facility right next door. And I wonder if you had thoughts while you did this of look at all this money that was spent here and look at all the people in this state who could have used this money. Does of that course. thought ever occur to you? Of course. Um, so when we went down there to Hattiesburg in 2020, we actually broke the story about the $5 million that went to the volleyball stadium. We knew about it, you know, even before the auditor's office had reported it. Um, and so we went down there to go to the facility. It's interesting too, the, the, the beach volleyball courts were being worked on while we went down there. The, the volleyball facility, the nice building was uh, virtually complete. Um, Brett Favre's daughter had actually switched from the regular volleyball team to the beach volleyball team at this point. And so then you see them starting to work on the beach volleyball courts. It's kind of, you know, um, telling. But one thing we did besides just going to the campus and looking at the facility was we went out to different service organizations and just out in the community, you know, different um, little tiny bodegas and walking around seeing who was, you know, outside and, and talk to people about what they would have liked to have seen done with $5 million, right? We talked to a woman who was sort of standing outside her house across from um, her house was an abandoned building. And she was like, how many, you know, homeless shelters or places that uh, like community centers that we could have built with that funding or, you know, facilitated some programming that would have actually helped people. You know, these people are not going over to the campus at USM in the middle of campus to the state-of-the-art volleyball facility to get services, right? Um, we talked to a lot of people who had tried to go to the local community action agency, um, that these are federally funded agencies that provide like uh, rental assistance or um, energy assistance, you know, to get your light bill paid. And we talked to one guy who, who didn't have running water in his house and hadn't for a while uh, because he had tried to go to that, um, that, that, organization and they said they didn't have anything for him or they couldn't help him. We talked to another guy who had his 
child uh, taken away like five years prior to this. And he was homeless at the time and he was trying to get, sorry. He was trying to get rental assistance so that he could get his child back from CPS. And they told him that he, they didn't have any programs for him or any money available for him. So there's a reason why you get emotional talking about this. And it's very simply because for some reason, the money that's supposed to be used to help the neediest people in Mississippi has oftentimes been used. Um, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's wrong to, to say this, but it's almost like it's being hit, being used to help the rich rather than being used to help the poor. And that must be part of the motivation for why you do the job that you do. Yeah, um, you know, before I took over this beat at Miss Be Today, um, my, my beat is poverty. I was working as the healthcare reporter for the statewide newspaper. And it was, that was a beat that I cared a lot about. But it, it seemed like all of the time I was running into stories where you know, it's a healthcare story, but at the, the root cause is, is this poverty uh, question and this, this economic issue um, and, and unfairness and inequity in the state. And um, no one was writing about poverty at the time. So I, I really wanted to dig in and focus on that. And that led me just very simply, I mean, there's a whole world, um, you know, around why poverty exists that is beyond just DHS, the Department of Human Services and federal safety net programs. But I thought I could at least start here, you know, and um, in trying to just find out if the ways that we were administering these programs were effective for people in poverty, that's what led to, to all of these discoveries. Do you think that poverty in Mississippi and one of the reasons why these funds get abused is because people all over the country in various uh, various various needy areas, many people who control the purse strings sort of look at it as white noise. And this is go this has existed for a long time. It's going to exist for a long time. We can't fix it. We can't do anything. So let's do some things, but let's not really try to fix the entire problem. And that must strike me as exceedingly frustrating when you start to uncover it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we saw within the spending of these welfare funds was that the state was determining how to spend the money based on their ideology and philosophy about people living in poverty. So there is this, um, this, this idea out there that providing direct resources to people provide uh, creates dependency on the government, right? And I think that there are lots of legitimate conversations to be had about what the most effective way um, to solve poverty is or and or like what is the government's role here? Um, and I think we should have those conversations, but I think everyone, no matter what you think about anti-poverty programs and what the state's role should be, I think everyone can agree that public money that is supposed to be used to solve poverty going to volleyball stadiums and concussion research firms. That was another company that Brett Favre sponsored that received welfare money. 
luxury vehicles and fancy hotel stays. I mean, it doesn't matter what letter comes after your name if you're politically affiliated, everyone can agree that that's wrong. Anna, two other things. Number one, what legally could happen to Brett Favre? I think everyone now understands the parameters of the story and whether he uh, is found guilty or not guilty in, in, in regard to any of these things. What's, what is he facing legally and what could happen to Favre throughout all this? So, you know, the FBI is still investigating and we're still waiting to see what um, they end up uncovering and who they end up uh, attempting to hold accountable. But the, the volleyball stadium purchase in particular is significant because it has already resulted in a criminal charge for someone in this matter. So Nancy New's son actually is the one who has pleaded guilty to defrauding the government related to this money that he um, put in the volleyball stadium, but also disguised uh, as a payment that was supposed to be a lease payment. Um, the way that they made this happen was that the nonprofit entered a $5 million lease with the Athletic Foundation down there, basically saying that they were leasing the property that they were going to use to provide programming to people in poverty, which most people looking at that agreement can tell is pretty thin. But in the plea agreement, he, it says that he coordinated and worked at the direction and with the support of others who are unnamed in the plea agreement. And so there are other people who facilitated that payment, who made that deal happen, who sort of orchestrated this um, workaround to the federal regulations. And we're just waiting to see who that is. And again, the DA said after John Davis's plea hearing that they were going to move up the ladder and you know up the ladder is his boss Phil Bryant who was the one communicating with Brett Favre about making this deal happen. So it's uncertain right now how deep the the uh alleg or how deep the charges could be against Favre. That's right. I mean, we, uh, you know, it's hard for me to say whether someone committed a crime or not based on what level of involvement they had in what has been determined to be a crime. It's not really for me to say, but we do know that the feds are continuing to investigate. And this latest news about John Davis pleading guilty, you know, it, it only kind of furthers that um, that investigation and the, the ability for them to, um, you know, um, receive testimony that helps their case. Finally, what what has this done? What has this story done, do you think, to Brett Favre's reputation in the state? And what are people you talk to uh, saying right now about, about Favre? The primary reaction is that people are not surprised. Um, Brett Favre, unfortunately, has a reputation of being kind of a, a cheapskate. And so if he's going to uh, find support for a project, he's probably going to get the funding from somewhere else rather than pay for himself. Um, you know, he's also been tied to other kinds of unsavory schemes. Um, there was a pain cream a pharmaceutical compounding scheme that he was tied to. He was never charged within it, but it was a 
hundreds of millions of dollar scheme that people are, you know, going to prison for down in Hattiesburg that he was tangentially tied to. Of course, you know about the the scandal with the text messages, uh, photos to the mm-hmm. the the woman on the um, cheerleading team, and you know these things that it just it kind of it fits in line with what he's being accused of now. Anna, what what do you hope to see come out of this for both the state of Mississippi and for needy people in the state? If this story isn't a an argument for welfare reform on the national level, like I don't know what is. Um, you know, ultimately this occurred because the money that we got to solve poverty in Mississippi was uh you know had so few strings attached and so little accountability over it at this point the state has basically um trusted that this new director of the agency is cleaning it up there haven't been any new um, laws uh, created to address this issue there hasn't been any new regulations or requirements for the department to for example report back to state officials about how they are solving poverty. So is that money actually resulting in outcomes for people in poverty? Are they getting jobs? Are they increasing their pay? Like what's happening to them after they leave this program? There still isn't any data being collected on that to suggest that we're using these funds in the most effective way possible. And I think that, um, you know, that that can come on the state level. We're not in a state that really prioritizes that those kinds of policies, but those policies could be enacted on the federal level as well. And now that the story is getting national attention, I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways that we can get from it is the need for the desperate need for reform in these public safety net programs. Anna, do you have any idea about a timetable about either as it relates to further charges, either for the former governor, Phil Bryan, or obviously for what our audience would be interested in, Brett Favre? It's it's hard to say. Um, I think the ball is really moving now. The Biden administration has just nominated a U.S. attorney for this district, um, which who, who will inherit the case. That position has been vacant for about two years, um, and so there hasn't been a U.S. attorney to really you know, emphasize this, this case and this investigation. So I think you're going to see the ball rolling for that reason. And then also John Davis's um, uh, tentative um, sentencing date is in February of 2023. So, you know, he's not going to be sentenced until the prosecutors are um, comfortable or satisfied with as much cooperation as he's given. Um, Nancy knew similarly, who pled guilty back in April is not going to be sentenced until the investigation is, you know, near completion. So, um, I think we, I don't think we're going to necessarily be seeing anything before early next year, 2023, but that could change. Anna Wolf, thanks so much for your time today. And, uh, more importantly, thanks so much for your reporting on a vital issue. Thank you. My thanks to Anna Wolf and my thanks as always to Miles Simmons. This was a spirited day of discussion and also a serious day because what's happening in the state of Mississippi is not just uh, you know serious because it involves Brett Favre and 
we never would have talked about it on this show, obviously, if Favre wasn't involved. But I think it's important sometimes to shine a light on on things when uh, the poorest are being taken advantage of. And that clearly is the, is the case in the state of Mississippi. But thanks for joining me this week. And thanks for joining Miles Simmons this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Peter King Podcast.